that's bright. Good morning. Many of you, um, we're still getting to know each other. I work a lot behind the scenes. And so as we grow a friendship, people ask me, where are you from, Corey? Um, well, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And there it is very wet and cold. It gets cold. And so when you have those two factors, wet and cold, you get ice. And I know that's unfamiliar to some of you, but you get ice, right? So when my brother was a teenager, he was driving somewhere. Um, we kind of lived like at the edge of the city, so probably like a country road. And he hit a patch of ice, and he slid off the road, and he ended up in, t- in a ditch, and he couldn't get out. His car wasn't damaged. It was fine. But this is back in the day before cell phones. It's like 15 years ago. You know, no one, they maybe had those huge ones, you know, <laughs> that a general would use. But um, so he just had to wait for another car to come to help him get out of the ditch. Well, another car did come, hit the same ice, slid off the road, and smacked into my brother's car. Awesome. Now it's an accident. <laughs> right? So you have to report that to the police. So they waited for a third car, and no, they, the third car did not hit them. Um, the third car stopped and call, went and called the police for them. The policeman came. And the policeman proceeded to give my brother a ticket for failure to maneuver his vehicle. That's just kind of their bread and butter in Ohio. And uh, my mother, when she tells this story, she gets all worked up and she, like, her face gets really red. So it's really funny because I made her tell it to me last week. Um, maybe got too much pleasure out of that. But uh, to... to To her and to me, my brother getting a ticket just didn't really seem to make any sense because the problem was really with the ice patch, right? I mean, if you hit ice, it's like an act of God. How do you recover a car on a patch of ice? Um, But, you know, it is the responsibility and the authority of the police to kind of interpret and apply the law in specific situations. But for some reason, that particular officer decided that finding my brother would be a just application of the law. So we didn't think it was cool, but, you know, he did. And uh, our society, to maintain order and to promote wellness, we, you know, what we do, we, we make laws. And we make more and more and more laws. And most of these laws, most, not all, are for the good of the citizens in the country where the law is. But I think we'd probably all agree that sometimes laws are misinterpreted or misapplied, depending on the circumstances. And really, it's no wonder, because modern laws have become so complex that we have to hire um, special people to write law because it's English that no one knows. And then we need special people to read and interpret that law. And then we need special people to enforce the law. And then that leaves peons like you and me trying to figure out how to live under all of these laws. What's clear about our world is that no matter how good our intentions, the pursuit of law can quickly spiral out of control until the law and not the people it was made for until the law is at the top of the heap. Jesus lived in a time and a culture with the same problems. And we just heard uh, Sarah read Luke 14, 1 to 24. And it's a three-part story. It's a long passage. Don't worry, we're not going to be here three hours. I'm not Baptist. Um, we are going to see Jesus uh, invited to the home of a Pharisee in Helaman. We're going to see Jesus then tell a parable about seating arrangements at a wedding reception. 
strange. And then he's going to tell a parable about who should get invited to a banquet. And at first glance, it seems like Jesus has a lot to say about dinner parties and social etiquette. But in fact, this um, parable and this whole passage is really about how to live as citizens in the kingdom of God. It doesn't say kingdom of God. Trust me, that's what we're talking about. In Luke 14, we'll learn that God's kingdom is a place where humans are freed from slavery to a law they can never fulfill. And the kingdom is, the kingdom uh, has citizens who are known by their humility and their hospitality. But don't take my word for it. Let's, let's go into the text and discover that together. Let's listen carefully for the wisdom of Jesus. He's the main character in the story as he teaches us about the kingdom of God. So the story starts with Jesus invited to the meal at a home, at the home of a prominent Pharisee. And really, just a step into the door of this house, Jesus encounters a trap. There in front of him, I don't know if he's on the floor or in a chair or whatever, is a man who has, your Bibles might say dropsy or edema, or this version just said swelling of the body. But dropsy is where um, fluid just builds up and builds up at some place in your body. And it's usually a sign of an underlying condition that can be life-threatening. It can be a sign that your heart is not working right. So we've read the gospel. We know that Jesus all over heals all kinds of people from all kinds of diseases. And I, I would imagine that his instinct here, like everywhere else, was just to, you know, heal the man. But the text also says that Jesus is being watched very carefully. And he's being watched by the religious leaders of his day. Jesus knows that they're trying to trap him. The problem in this story is that it's the Sabbath. And you'll recall that up and down the highways of Israel and Jesus in his three-year ministry, people everywhere were asking him, what is lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, just as we have people in our culture to interpret and enforce the law, so did the first century, a little history lesson is that Jesus lived in a country that was ruled by the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was gigantic. Uh, if you can imagine, like all along the coast of the Mediterranean, from Spain over to Turkey, over to, you know, the coast of Northern Africa. Roman Empire, huge, right? So one Caesar can't rule that whole place. He needs to appoint kings throughout his regions to keep order. So in Israel, the kings Herod were the rulers. And, um, well, they had enough authority to have the firstborn sons of the Jews murdered for fear of a prophesied Jewish king that was going to come and take the throne. But the king's Herod did not have religious authority in their culture. That power was in the hands of two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And you may know about them, but let me just give you a brief lesson. The Sadducees were the wealthy upper class. They were the aristocrats. And though they held most of the positions of power in the temple, they spent most of their time bowing and scraping in front of the Roman authorities, you know, puffing them up, telling them how important they are, and accommodating their culture to the Romans. That meant that the smaller group, the Pharisees, resisted the influence of the Romans and therefore became the, the, the religious authority in the eyes of the people. So the Pharisees were considered experts in the law, 
And the Jewish people looked up to them and looked up to them as, as the people who are going to take God's law and help them understand how to live it in their lives. The Pharisees' number one concern was the law of God. They also valued, though, what's called oral tradition. And that's in the interpretation of law for certain circumstances. So this is key. For the Pharisees, there's God's law, but oral interpretation is just as important as God's law. Now, most of us know from reading the Gospels that the Pharisees took the law to the nth degree. Take, for example, the Sabbath, which is what's going on in our story. To remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Does that sound familiar? The fourth commandment. Now, we could probably do a whole sermon series on the Sabbath, which I would vote for. It's one of my favorite topics. But uh, basically, the Sabbath was a day of rest from work and from creating. And that was to kind of reflect the rest that God took after he created the earth. But through a couple thousand years of Jewish history, religious leaders interpreted the Sabbath law for particular life circumstances. And eventually those interpretations became like law in the eyes of the people. And by Jesus' day, there are all kinds of stipulations attached to Sabbath law that really aren't explicitly found in the Bible. Check out this list of 39 Sabbath prohibitions. 39. And of course, you know, if Pharisees are interpreting, you could always add to that list. Clearly, the Pharisees have been very busy telling the people what they cannot do in order to live a godly life. But in the middle of their law-centric religiosity, they've forgotten the spirit that gave birth to that law. The spirit of God who loved his people and sought to protect and prosper them by giving them the law as a rubric for how to live their lives. If they followed God's law, God's people would have been known for their love, their peace, their purity, and most of all, for their worship of one God alone. But unfortunately, people, even people devoted to God, are not very good at following the law. Now, this little history lesson, hopefully it didn't bore you, but it's really going to enhance our understanding of what's going on in Luke 14. Remember, Jesus enters the home of the Pharisee, and boom, the first tracks in front of him, a man whose body is so swollen with fluid, he's probably obviously uncomfortable, and he is very sick. Jesus turns to the Pharisees and voices the question that everyone's thinking. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Everyone in the room knew the fourth commandment, right? The Pharisees had the law memorized. Since the law was subject to the Pharisees' interpretation, which was scripture plus oral oral tradition, right? There was really no way that Jesus could avoid this trap. But I like Jesus. He's no cowering pup. You know, he's not a little puppy shaking in the corner, mewling. He is... A man who knew his master, and the master was not the law or the Pharisees. His master was the creator of the universe, the king of heaven and earth. So, Jesus boldly steps into the trap and heals the man. It was a profound moment. There was probably stunned silence, maybe some sly smiles on the faces of the Pharisees, because they finally trapped Jesus. 
But the text really doesn't say anything. It just says that Jesus sent the man he healed away. Literally, um, the, the sent him away is uh, set him loose from. That's the verb. That's what it means. Jesus set him loose from. The end, the, end of this kind of the end of the sentence. So sure, it can mean that Jesus, you know, sent the man away from the house. But I think there might be a little bit more meaning in this, in this part of the text. I think that there's a symbolic meaning. What did Jesus set him loose from? Perhaps the chains created by the Pharisees' interpretation of the law? Maybe from being a slave to physical suffering because of the religiosity of the high and mighty. Jesus then call, uh, calls out the Pharisees when he asked them which of them would not save their son or an ox from drowning in a well even on the Sabbath. <laughs> this is very clever of Jesus. You see, sons were symbols of a man's virility, if you know what that means, his worth and his future. And oxen, well, oxen was a man's ability to plow the dry desert earth and to plant seeds that will then grow the grain for a man's household. Sons and oxen were some of the most important, valuable possessions a man could have in ancient times. And Jesus knew that any man at that table would risk his life to save his pride, his livelihood, and his future, even on the Sabbath. Now Jesus has those cunning Pharisees in a trap. His question exposes their hypocrisy, knowing that for all their appearance of righteousness, they're really just self-righteous. Rather than being concerned about God and God's law, the Pharisees, like ordinary humans, are always looking out for number one. True colors exposed, verse 6 says that Pharisees had nothing to say. I'll bet. Do you know what Jesus talked about more than any other topic when he was in ministry? Most people would say, I think Jesus talked most about love. Well, that's a good answer. Uh, Jesus did talk a lot about love, but he talked the most about the kingdom of God. When he healed on the Sabbath, Jesus showed one very important DNA strand to the kingdom of God. It's a life, a life where people are loosed from the chains of religious legalism. And that's because none of us can follow the law completely. According to Romans 3.23, you probably know this when I say it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, we can't, we can't possibly keep every law all the time, and that becomes a problem because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. We should die because we sin. But here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to earth. When Jesus was preaching and teaching and telling stories, people thought that he was saying that they should get rid of the law. It was scandalous what Jesus was saying. But he clears up this misconception in Matthew 5:17, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, we all fail in trying to follow God's law and live perfectly godly lives. 
Since none of us are sinless, we deserve death. But look at what God did. He sent his son Jesus to earth, a man who was sinless, who lived a perfect life. But he didn't just send him to earth to teach us stuff. He sent him to the cross to die for our sin. Listen to the good news of Romans 6, 10, and 11. The death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is the king that we serve. The king that would sacrifice his only son to save imperfect sinners like you and me. Because he loves us, he gave us a gift, eternal life. Now that is quite a contrast from the character of the Pharisees, these religious elite who would only break the Sabbath law for their own gain. Love and grace and mercy are the character of the king who owns this earth. Through Jesus, God inaugurated a new world order, a new way of living. He reset the shape of godly living to match that of his heavenly kingdom. And in our passage, Jesus heals on the Sabbath and declares through his actions, he doesn't say this, but through his actions, he's declaring that in his Father's kingdom, restoration and healing, not religious legalism, are the fulfillment of God's law. Who wants to live in that kingdom? Who wants to worship that king? So, if we are loosed from a law that we can never perfectly follow all the time, then I want to know, what is it that we're loosed to? How should we live as citizens of God's kingdom? Jesus gives us the answers in part two and three of this story. If you have your Bible, look again at Luke 14, 8 to 11. We uh, see the guest busy taking seats of honor at the table. And Jesus has a problem with this. So he confronts them with a parable or a story about a wedding reception. It sounds like he's instructing them about seating arrangements, which seems like a very strange thing for the Messiah to talk about. Jesus cautions guests not to take the seat of honor just in case a bigger VIP shows up. Jesus, with his story, exposes the Pharisees' selfishness again. Can you just imagine Joe Pharisee going to reception and manipulating his way into the seat of honor? I can almost hear him thinking, if I can just get next to the groom, then more eyes will be on me. Talk about looking up for number one. Jesus tells them that such actions, such pride, will lead to humiliation. He instructs them instead to take the worst seat in the house. Expecting a Pharisee, one of the elite, to choose the seat reserved for the groom's cousin's neighbor's childhood best friend, it sounds like madness. But it's really another strand of kingdom DNA. Verse 11 says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
Citizens in the kingdom of God should humble themselves. Literally, to humble means to bring low or to make level, and to exalt means to lift up. But what does humbling ourselves look like? Sure, we can read this passage literally and humble ourselves by giving up good seats at a wedding reception or a banquet, a dinner, you know, or even a Diamondbacks game. But if that's our only interpretation of this passage, then our lives are going to become a grand comedy of musical chairs. And the people who are watching us are just going to think we are weird, not godly. If we soften our literal interpretation of this passage, we'll realize that Jesus is talking about the humility of our hearts and our vision. You see, I think that the problem in our culture is not that we're always looking out for number one. The problem is our answer to the question, who is number one? In our individualistic culture, I am always number one. Now, when I say I in the next couple paragraphs, or me or mine, think of yourself, not Corey, okay, I. It's both understandable and acceptable that in my climb to the top of the career ladder, athletic podium, or even the steps to this pulpit, that I will leave some collateral damage. It's okay if I manipulate or use others to get what I want because I should get what I deserve. Culture tells me, do what you have to do because no one's going to help you get there. So I use and I crush and I ignore until I'm at the top of the heap. And then I tell myself, I'm a winner. I am number one. As the queen of the kingdom of me, all I can see is me and mine. But then one day I die. And it will all be gone. And no one will care about what I did or I had. The end. But I can be a part of a different story. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we can humble ourselves and make Jesus number one. And what happens? Our hearts get transformed. Because of what Jesus did for me on the cross, I know I am loved. I know I will never be abandoned, and I know that God is at work in my life even when I can't see it. If I watch Jesus closely, then I can see. And what I see is that he didn't just die for me, he died for everyone. Power-tripping bosses, potty-mouthed teenagers, crooked politicians, the Pharisees, the Kardashians, He died for felons and perfectionists, for grudge bearers and gossips, for princes and peons. With Jesus as my number one, I'm transformed from a self-absorbed snob into a person who can not only see others, but sees that they're forgiven, cleansed in the same blood that cleansed me from my sin. The blood of Jesus Like a flash flood, it swipes us off our ladders and podiums and pulpits until we all wash up at his feet. And at the feet of Jesus, it's only as I sit there that I will learn not just to see others as my equals. 
I'll even learn to see them as more important than myself. Humility is a virtue learned and practiced and relearned and relearned and relearned at the feet of the only true number one to have ever walked this earth. But that's not the end of the story either. Jesus has more to say about humility and his father's kingdom. Jesus finishes his parable about the wedding reception and before a single person has a chance to comment, turns to his host, this prominent Pharisee, and gives him instructions about who to invite over for lunch. Either Jesus is a stickler for etiquette or there's something else going on here. And there is. He's showing the Pharisee the third strand of kingdom DNA. In verses 12 to 14, we heard Jesus tell the Pharisee not to invite his friends, his families, or his rich neighbor. Because if he does, a return invitation is his only reward. Jesus is saying, look, pal, don't just welcome people who know you and love you and can enhance your bank account. Don't reduce life to a game of I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. He's saying there is more to life than living for number one. To get a rich life, Jesus tells him, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And the Pharisee probably choked on his wine. What? Moi? A prominent Pharisee, the elitist of the elitist? Welcome into my home the diseased? The disposables, the destitutes, those people won't get me to the top of the heap. Clever Jesus has caught the number one Pharisee in yet another trap. Jesus has again exposed the Pharisee's self-absorbed thinking. With his words, he calls for a reordering of society, a new way of living. Remember, he just told them to humble themselves and to exalt others. And now he's showing them what that looks like. The third strand of kingdom DNA is to practice radical hospitality. When Jesus lived on earth, there was a very clearly defined social order. For those at the top of the heap, like the Pharisees, it was all about who was Jewish and who wasn't, who was clean and who was unclean, who was pure and who was a sinner, and who had a son to pass on a legacy and who didn't. Who is your father? Where are you from? Who are your ancestors? Those were the questions that defined your worth in society's eyes. Now, having food and shelter depended on being somehow attached to a viable, enterprising man. So daughters, widows, orphans, forget it. Don't expect to be seen as much more than a strain on the family budget. Being the son of Joseph, a carpenter from Nazareth, well, that wasn't so hot either. But even worse were the poor, those who couldn't contribute to society or their family's standing because they maybe had a physical disability. Those people were tucked away in their homes or left to sit in the dust at the gates of the city or the steps of the temple to beg for bread. Those lowly people are whom Jesus tells the Pharisee to have over for lunch. 
citizens of the kingdom of God are expected to practice the same radical hospitality, and that means you and me. I know that times are hard. Many of us are just scraping by financially, and we have filled our lives with jobs to feed us or activities to fulfill us. But how many of us are missing the blessing of radical hospitality? Yes. Luke 14.14 says that hospitality leads to blessing. Now, I don't think Jesus is defining discipleship as dinner parties, although I think he'd love to join one of our fabulous potlucks or one of Sherry's tea parties. We can take his instructions literally and invite the poor, the vulnerable, and the outcasts in our society to our tables because the table is a great place to start practicing hospitality. But I want to encourage and challenge us to live out this passage beyond the literal. I think that Jesus calls us, just like he called that Pharisee, to something far more radical, a hospitality of the heart. The deepest expression of hospitality that I have ever known was when Jesus died a painful criminal death so we didn't have to. God looked at us, saw our every sin, knew all our weaknesses, heard our selfish ambitions, and said, I love them. I love them so much that I will give my only son to die so they don't have to. And then he did this. He adopted us into his family. He embraced us. So here's the million-dollar question. Who needs our embrace? Who needs your embrace? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is what radical hospitality looks like. It is not our job to save people from their sins or condemn them for their sins. Jesus has already saved them from those sins. But we are the body of Christ, and you'll hear people talking about, how can I be Jesus' hands and feet in the world? Who needs to be embraced by the love of God? Who needs to know that no matter what their circumstances, they are loved, that there is a family for them, a people who will accept them, Having even a single relationship where someone can look you in the eye and confess their their deepest, darkest, most shame-filled secret and receive your love, that is radical kingdom hospitality. Don't misunderstand me. Doing acts of justice in our society makes God dance. That's why our church is involved in ministries like Streetlight and Cool Spot, Maggie's Place and the Hope House. We are doing that because we are living out God's radical hospitality in our world. But all of that valuable action should spring out of a hospitality of the heart, a hospitality which grows in us when Jesus is our number one. Actions that are not motivated by deep love can too easily become duty, or law. That's what the Pharisees were caught up in. 
purity and holiness for the sake of respect, hospitality to benefit their social standing, and law as a trap to keep people below them. Even though they followed God's law to the nth degree, they couldn't see the kingdom of God. Now the law and the prophets that the Pharisees had memorized, all of that was pointing at the kingdom and pointing at the need for a Messiah to come and step in. But the Pharisees couldn't see past their own importance. That's what the parable of the great banquet is about in verses 16 to 24. It's a warning to the Pharisees that they are like the characters in the story, invited guests to a lavish banquet who make stupid excuses and miss the greatest fellowship they could have ever known. If the Pharisees cannot recognize who is number one, then the story says there won't be a place for them in the master's house. If you've read the Bible from the beginning, you know the big picture. There's prophecy about a Messiah, a descendant of King David that will redeem God's people and restore his kingdom. The Jews of Jesus' day were literally waiting for someone to come and take back the throne in Jerusalem and kick the Roman army out of Israel. What they got was a carpenter from Nazareth who touched lepers and talked with adulteresses, ate with tax collectors, and befriended insignificant fishermen. But that was the Messiah. God sent Jesus to earth to redeem his people, the Jews. But God's heart was so big, his hospitality so radical, that he made room for people that were not his own. Jesus' apparent rejection of the law and his acceptance of sinners, the vulnerable, and the outcasts in the society led the self-righteous Pharisees to call for Jesus' blood in front of Pilate. And Jesus humbled himself and died a criminal's death. And the Pharisees probably felt triumphant because with Jesus dead, they were still at the top of the heap. But then, Jesus rose from the dead. And he is now sitting at the best place of honor, at the right hand of his father, the king of heaven and earth. With his resurrection, Jesus shows us that the Pharisees were the real blind men. They couldn't see who was truly number one. Do you? Please pray with me.